0: You're listening to the Tenuto Podcast presented by me, Kevin Lynch. Here we go! Greetings from Boca Raton, Florida. I'm your host, Kevin Lynch, and I'm out here in Boca Raton on spring break, and I'm here with some familiar voices. We have Kemper Lake from episode, I think, let me get this right. Temper's from episode ten, and we also have Carly Sokol out here from episode twelve. Two teachers that I work with in Stafford County, and then we've also got a couple other teachers down here. Um, so a total of six of us down in Florida. We took our spring break. We drove through the night, Sunday into Monday, and now we are here enjoying the nice weather, enjoying our week off. Um, so we're really enjoying that, and. I hope you guys really enjoyed this guest that I had on the podcast this week. His name is Jeffrey Leffert. I'm sure a lot of you guys know him. He is the associate professor of saxophone at Oklahoma State University. Um, Jeffrey is very well spoken. Everything he said during the podcast just inspired me to want to be better and want to get out and teach um, as soon as I could. It was something that was really nice to have over spring break because it gave me that extra boost that I was looking for to to finish out throughout the year. Um, A little bit about Jeffrey. Like I said, he is the associate professor of saxophone at Oklahoma State. Um, Besides that, in the summer he teaches at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp in Michigan, uh, the Great Plains Saxophone Workshop in Oklahoma, New Music on the Point in Vermont and the Cortona Sessions for New Music in Cortona, Italy, which I thought was really cool. Jeffrey has a lot of experience overseas in Italy and even France, uh, and we, we talk about that a little bit in the interview. Leffert is a dedicated teacher, and he's actually won a couple of awards recently. He is a recent re- award recipient of the Oklahoma State University College of Arts and Sciences Junior Faculty Award for Scholarly Excellence and the Wise Diggs Berry Award for Teaching Excellence. Finally, one last award, the Friends of Music Distinguished Music Professor Award. Um, He's also a very active chamber musician, founding member of the H2 Quartet. I'm going to stop talking about his accomplishments, and I'm just going to let you hear him talk, because what he says is so inspiring and so motivating. So without further ado, here is Jeffrey Leffert. I have Jeff Leffert here, Associate Professor of Saxophone at Oklahoma State. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your path to becoming the Professor of Saxophone at Oklahoma State? Sure.
1: You know, I I grew up in Houston, Texas, and the truth is I was very lucky. I had a lot of really outstanding teachers growing up, um, excellent band directors and really good private lesson instructors, and... Um, They directed me through um, uh, various schools and I had a really positive experience all the way through. Um, I started teaching at Oklahoma State about seven years ago. Um, Next year will be my eighth year and it's been wonderful. I have really supportive colleagues. Um, and it was really just sort of a perfect fit. Um, I love being at Oklahoma state and I love the students there and, um, I look forward to investing a career, uh, helping to continue to develop the music program at OSU.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you went to Michigan state for undergrad and graduate school. Is that correct? Well, I, I, I went to
1: Michigan state, uh, for graduate school. Okay. Uh, I started
0: at Northwestern
1: University, um, and um, you know, I was a music performance and jazz studies double major. Um, and, and that was terrific. You know, the, the environment there was incredible. I loved living in North Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and I had such a positive experience with all the ensembles, um, the Wynn Ensemble and Contemporary Music Ensemble. And uh, my colleagues in the Saxon Studio were excellent. Um, they remained some of my closest uh, friends and professional um, I, after Northwestern, I, I went to Paris, and I, I studied in two of the conservatories there, um, and I did that for two years, um, and I concluded graduate studies at Michigan State, um, and it was equally a positive experience, a little bit different <clears throat> sort of experience, but I had great mentors. Um, Joe Luloff was an excellent mentor to me in the Saxon studio, and um, <clears throat> Kevin Sedatol was a great band director of bands, um, he's still there. And, um, um, and also really have to say what a profound impact the music theory faculty had on me. And so one yeah. of my masters degrees is in music theory pedagogy. Um, and they really took me under their wing, um, took a chance on me, frankly. And, um, um, you know, my, my professional success is in large part due to the music theory faculty in MSU, Lee Van Handel, Gordon Sly, Bruce Dagger, uh, Bruce Campbell, um, you know, it was, it was terrific. I owe them a great deal.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And you, you told, you said that you were in Paris for a little bit. Can you tell me about that experience and what that was like? Are you fluent in French now? Bien sûr.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I I wouldn't say that I'm fluent, um, but I'm proficient maybe is a better way um, to describe it. So I get around well, you know, went to the French schools and, um, um, I guess I'm, it's Especially good with with like rehearsals and and lessons because that was so much of my experience. Um, but you know the experience was great not just for the musical part but I think the cultural um, the cultural experience I received, just seeing how other people view music, how they view life. Um, you know it, it's a much different way of thinking than. Um, than, you know, in the United States. And one of the unfortunate parts of being in the U.S. is, you know, so much of our media is specific to the U.S. and um, our way of life is, you know, specific to the U.S. When you're in Europe, um, you know, you can't help but be immersed in other cultures because it's all there. It's it's all around you, so right. much more easily accessed. Um, and, and that really had a profound impact on my life and, um, sort of trying to figure out what I value in this career and what's important to me in teaching, um, but um, I when when I was finishing my undergraduate, I was just um, I think looking for something different at that time, I had a really positive experience, uh, but I wanted a new sort of challenge. And um, as a saxophonist, um, you know the, the French. School of saxophone has a certain allure. It certainly did when I was going to school, and um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to go to what was the birthplace for so much of our literature and and some of so much of our pedagogy, frankly, in France and um, specifically in Paris. And my teachers there were wonderful. Um, I had good classmates, really kind of an international class. Um, you know, I, I went to sc- there. Of course, there were many French students, but also many Canadian students, Mexican students, Spanish students, uh, Korean, Japanese. Um, So it was kind of like a, you know, a a cultural exchange um, for everybody in a sense. And, um, you know, it's fascinating um, with, you know, some of my fellow students from Japan, for instance, when they had to communicate in their second language, French, and I had to do the same, and just how different those were for us. And, And you Um, You know, and you you start to try to find common ground and and languages were uncomfortable speaking. And and of course, you know, music always seemed to be the thing that we could relate to most easily. And it's it's just kind of fascinating how, um, you know, even with such extreme cultures, even speaking a language um, that was unfamiliar, that we would still find common ground.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's fantastic. And that's nice that you weren't the only one going through that where you had to be learning a second a second language yeah it was it was uncomfortable and
1: um back i you know i wish i I would have been um i guess a little bit more courageous at first i mean I, I remember when I was first making um the trip how how scared I was to you know start something new and I just didn't want to make mistakes i mean that was the whole yeah my mindset is I didn't want to make mistakes and and that was the wrong approach um you know and, and it took me. It took me several months to figure it out that you know, I was just going to make mistakes. What was important was making progress and, and getting better. And um, as soon as I sort of flipped that switch, everything came easier. I, I communicated better, understood better. I was a better student. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, and that's yeah. that's hard for, yeah. for somebody to do. My college band director said that in his graduate work, he – He was so busy trying to prove that he was the best conductor there that he forgot all about the reasons why he was there, and it was just to make progress, right, exactly like you said. Over the summers, you stay very busy from what I've seen and what I've read about you, and I saw that you are teaching in Italy and you're doing all these summer camps. So you have a lot of experience overseas, right? You have a lot of experience outside of the country. What are you doing out there in Italy?
1: Well so the the Italy
0: program is is part um, of a
1: institute called the Cortona Sessions for New Music. Okay. Uh, and it's run by Michael Kirkendall um, who's on the faculty at the University of Kansas. Michael does such an incredible job of organizing this festival. Um, you know there're just there's so many logistical components to um, to something like this. I mean you, you know, the whole thing is hosted at uh, at a hotel, and it's it's really like a converted monastery. It's beautiful, um, right in the heart of Tuscany. But things like you know, you, you have to get these, you have to have pianos trucked in, and and this is not like an easily accessible place. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's doing this, and of course he's communicating in Italian, um, and organizing rehearsal spaces and concert spaces, and renting cellos from um um from Florence and having those you know delivered. It's um it requires so much work and it to me it's just fascinating to see how someone organizes such a profound event. Um and, and it often goes unlooked and I think underappreciated. Uh, these people are organizing these workshops. And now, um, you know, one of the things coming up this summer, I'm excited for my students I have several of them attending the Con Selmer workshop um, in Indiana, my music education students. And and I, I just think of, you know, what a tremendous organizational effort it must take. And you know, I hope those people will get sufficient praise because that's, that's really the heart of making this happen. Um, but the, the Italy thing, you know, I primarily work with um, American students there actually, Okay. but one of the things that's been fascinating over the last three years is I've been, um, I've been hooked up with an organization called the wind bands association of Singapore. Um, and I was invited to attend there with Frank Troika um, to do these series of leadership and music workshops, and and I I kind of am the woodwind specialist person, and so I teach woodwind pedagogy um, and um, you know just just basic ways to help um, these students get better. And teaching in Singapore um, opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And you know I have to say that these students are are outstanding students. I mean they really are. And, and I've read so many articles over the last few years referring to Singapore as sort of the model for education. I mean, these are brilliant. It's well-versed in multiple languages. Um, but there's there's some difficulty in teaching them from, I guess, my American eyes. And it's that it, it's difficult to elicit response from them. And they're so accustomed to um, just being good students and listening sort of a lecture style format yeah. that it, it, it's hard to get them to interact. And I think a really American uh, concept is we we sort of continually ask questions mm-hmm. in a large group setting like that. But it's not necessarily to get the right answers from them; it's to engage them in learning. Um, and, and I'm so accustomed to that. And so when you ask a question, and then you can sense that of course they know the answer, but that it's just really hard to get them to speak up. Yeah, you know that's that's a that's a difficulty. And you know I notice that as a cultural difference. Um, you know especially when you see how brilliant these students are. Um, but, you know, that, thats it's made me think a lot about my own teaching here and, um, you know, trying to be more efficient in, in those situations and less talk is more. And, and sometimes it's just better to demonstrate when possible. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it's been a fascinating thing. Um, at the end of this summer, I'll travel to Bangkok um, um, for the Asia Pacific Saxophone Academy. Um, and that's a, a little bit over a week. Um long sort of event well there'll be concerts and and i 'll be teaching saxophone lessons and so you know one of the things I really value right now is uh, sort of varied um, experiences in my careers and i th- I think of Bretona, like, which is a new music festival last summer I did um, new music on the point in Vermont, also a new music festival that's excellent. The wind bands Association of Singapore really is mm-hmm. cent- on pedagogy for younger students and, um, the Asia Pacific Saxon Academy or the Great Plains workshop that we do in Oklahoma, you know, that's Saxon specific pedagogy. And I, I find it really refreshing kind of going uh, back and forth between, you know, these various, uh, uh, various events.
0: Yeah. And then I also saw that you work at, you've been working at Blue Lake Camp in Michigan, staying true to your roots from Michigan State. Um, uh, I right. I work at Interlocking. Over the, the past oh, two cool. summers, I've been out there. Um, uh, what is it that you like about Blue Lake? A lot, and you know, I
1: I, I went for six consecutive summers, and the last two, unfortunately, I've been able to go because I've had okay. conflict okay. with the dates. Um, um, but I am I, I do very much hope to rejoin the faculty soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, um, Blue Lake's been a terrific experience. they have taken good care of me. Um, and there's a, there's a lot I like about teaching at Blue Lake, but for one, you know, at, at OSU I primarily teach music education majors, and I think it's it's easy to get out of touch with the challenges that they're going to face in the classroom, um, you know, and it it's it's so. It's a challenge to teach these younger students. Um, you have to have such such highly specific information. Um, you know they the, these the younger students just don't necessarily have a context to interpret your meaning and, and what you're trying to say. Um, I mean, it, this is really master teaching that, that happens. You know, the younger they are, I think the harder they are to teach. And it's, yes. it's ironic that it, it tends to be our younger teachers that are working, you know, our less experienced teachers that are working with these students. Um, and it's some of the most challenging teaching, actually. And and I always find that every time I go back to Blue Lake that, you know, I've been living on Easy Street, you know, working with these <laughs> undergraduate master <laughs> students. Um, and, and and you know I see whoa you know this I, I have to figure out how to help the student get better and you know that's the thing is they're not going to achieve um, at a level beyond what their teacher sets them up to do and um, you know and at Blue Lake I, I really take ownership of that and it's it's tiring I always feel um, so worn out by the end of it and I, I think it's because it's, it's just difficult work and um, i always come back. Um, to my university teaching with a sort of refreshed mindset, and um, you know if if i 'm going to help my students ultimately be successful I, I need to have some understanding of what they 're getting themselves into and um, and and be able to provide them strategies for being effective teachers, both in the short and the long term and um, I think maybe I appreciate that most about Blue Lake is uh you know it's it 's just a different cross section of students that I'm working with and, and they're all, they're, they're wonderful people. And, and, you know, I just always have to kind of
0: reevaluate what's the most effective way to, to get them to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, yeah, like you said, that's probably very different from what you're doing every day. Um, And you are also a successful chamber musician, right? I mean, you've, you've been playing all over, won a bunch of awards, do you have any ideas on how to get more chamber ensembles started at younger levels like middle school or, or even high school? Because some of my favorite experiences in music have been chamber groups and where I've really grown the most, but I'm not getting to do as much of it as I would like as a middle school band director. i just curious what your thoughts were. Right. Well, I, I guess, you know, I want to preface by
1: just agreeing with you that I, I think, promoting chamber music is a critical element to music education I think at every single level uh, and sometimes it gets overlooked um, because of the challenges of organizing it which is what you just articulated and, and it is a different sort of challenge but the importance is this it it gives the students an opportunity to foster independent thought and critical, musical thinking skills on their own. Um, it, it allows them to learn to rehearse each other. I, I think at every level, I mean, even my university students, I can tell when we're doing something truly special is when the chamber groups are achieving a higher level than, um, than their individual musical capacity. Right. Is at. you know, and, um, and, and and there was a time here the last few years where we were really doing that. You know, it's we had we had they're they're smart students, um, but they're they're technically immature. We still had to work that out. But as a chamber group, they're outstanding, and it was just allowing them to find this sort of interdependency. And what happens is they they were always accountable to one another, um, and and consequently. They 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 collectively achieved at a much higher level. Um, there's so much about chamber music that I can say reinforces um, what they're going to do in a band rehearsal. Um, you know, things like um, uh, intonation is a big part of it. Matching mm-hmm. sound, matching vibrato, matching articulation, internal beats, and then you know, of course, there's no there's no what I call band camouflage. Um, you know, it's there, it and there really is no such thing as camouflage. I mean, every part. And any size ensemble is important, uh, but when there are only three or four or five musicians, like it's, it's very you, you still sound the same. It's just a lot more apparent. It's easier for them to sort of assess: are they are they getting it or are they not? Yeah. Uh, so going back to your question, you know, strategies for how do we do this? You know, if middle school students, it's more difficult, I find um, actually, and and the reason. Why is with these chamber groups you there is some sort of expectation for um, being able to rehearse and work independently? Absolutely, um, you have yeah. to be that some. And and of course the problem is often with the middle school students they lack the requisite rehearsal knowledge, rehearsal etiquette to uh, make progress on their own. Now that's not to say they can't do it. It's just mm-hmm. that they have to have more specific guidance. I'd say the high school students, the same. Um, but one of the things I've been most blown away with over the last several years is the um, the amount of musical growth that I, I see from these high school, and middle school chamber groups. And, and when I've gone to Midwest um, or TMEA, uh, the last several years, and, and I, I, I see some of these brass quintets and, and saxophone quartets, and um, just the level that they achieve at is well beyond um, anything that I, I thought possible, which I thought was really telling for me, and it, and it means that I, I think I tend to inadvertently place ceilings on my students and what they could do on their own, and that's that, that was a pretty tough pill to swallow, um, yeah. you know, it was a learning experience that, that I was— providing these shortcomings for my students inadvertently. Um, but the other part of it is that I'm starting to see that, well, these chamber groups can achieve at such a high level. How are they doing it? Well, I think with the middle school students, you know, it's it's about doing two things. And it's first providing them some sort of tangible goal, because people tend to be goal-oriented, um, and then two, providing them with really specific um, processes to to make this progress. And with the younger, the younger, the more important that is. And so, you know, by the goals, what I mean by that, if they're preparing for these competitions or these recitals, it gives them some clarity for what are they trying to accomplish beyond mm-hmm. getting together and play. Which, of course, that can be beneficial. But they're going to work at a higher level if they know they're working towards something. And also say they're also they're going You know, that you'll teach at a higher level when you know that you're preparing for something as well. It gives you a little Mm -hmm. bit more clarity on um, what the process should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then the other part of it is, you know, you, you can't expect them to. You know, necessarily be able to tell that, okay, this is, we're going to have to, um, you know, check this little passage out because we'll keep falling apart in the syncopation. Something like that may be more sophisticated than they're able to tackle on their own. But they can do things like, you know, if you give them specific instructions, you need to work through measure one through measure 10, and you're going to put the metronome starting at this tempo, and then um, you're going to increase to, you know, to this. Or I want you to focus on just the attack points or, um, you know, things like that, or, or, um, you know, play these in long tones. if you give them really specific rehearsal strategies, things that they can tackle on their own, and I would say be able to assess on their own, um, they can start to do that. But the other, and maybe this is the key, is Band directors just tend to be spread so thin. I think it's one of the challenges of, of the job is um, you're responsible for so much. I think that the chamber groups, um, if, if you have a strong private lesson culture in your school, the most successful chamber groups that I've seen for middle school and high school are the ones that are uh, primarily led by their lesson instructors or people that are brought in um, to specifically assist them with yeah. that. So I just, I think it's about delegating it. And I do have another strategy. Um, sure. And I kind of take the cue from, um, from what I've learned in Singapore. And in Singapore, they have a really interesting system in that, um, you know, their, their slightly older students will teach their younger students. And then the oldest students teach those slightly younger students. And, yes. you know, they refer to them as their juniors. And so part of my work when I'm over there is really like imagine me teaching let's say like high school juniors um how they're going to teach their beginning clarinet students mm-hmm. um and 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 it's a really it's a fascinating topic because the older students, you know, they they have to take ownership of this information in order to articulate it, um, and then the younger students feel accountable to their older students. They want to get it right in a different way than they do to like their teacher, for instance. And so, if there's a way to set up sort of a mentorship program. Like, imagine having a woodwind quintet, but the flute player is a senior in high school and the other players are, you know, seventh graders. Um, and, and then you, you can give the senior in high school specific strategies and information with how to best instruct them. And then you, you at least have someone there that can help lead rehearsals that can plan um, rehearsal etiquette and, and can help follow through strategies. Right. I think really a good way to do it is to start to mix it. And I think it's some of the most profound learning um, that takes place comes from just slightly older students. And um, I mean, that's the key to the chamber groups is you keep them involved and, and you keep someone consistently working with them, even if it's not you. Um, you know, band directors can't always um, be the person to um, guide the groups, but it doesn't mean that you can't, um, you can't delegate this And and, in a really positive, effective way with some of the, um, you know, older students or private lesson teachers, I think both
0: can work. Absolutely. Wow. That gave me so many different things to think about. Thank you. That was a fantastic answer. And that really, yeah, absolutely. And I love that you're able to draw from your experiences, even from Singapore. And something I keep going back to is just thinking about how different it was there compared to here, like you were saying earlier. That's really interesting. Um, so really quick, you presented at Midwest this year. Was this your first time presenting at Midwest? No, um, I, I presented, um, two
1: previous times. Okay. Um, the, the, uh, the very first time, um, it was, it was actually sort of a similar lecture, but it was a little bit different. And it was, um, it was the college student is an effective private teacher and it was more of a, um sort of nuts and bolts this is this is these are the things you want to approach in a 20 minute lesson a 40 minute lesson a 60 minute lesson right and for sort of the specifics to lessons um and you know this this uh, most recent presentation um was you know, I did this with Andrew Week, who's—he's uh, really a special band director. He teaches in Richardson, I.C., in Texas. And what was fascinating working with Andrew is, you know, you see his, his brilliance. I mean, he and I just do so many different things. Um, and, and so it was, it's kind of fascinating to see how we could complement one another. Um, and and it was just—when I would think about the things that, that he does in his job, like, you know, really teaching a horn player— Um, to make progress and to sound good, you know, as a sixth grader, I mean, that's, that's something that's beyond my skill set, actually. And it's, um, I think it really requires some highly specific knowledge for the instrument to, to be able to get younger students to make progress. And I think that's what I was getting at earlier with, it's hard to teach younger students. And, you know, I feel like if I were listening to, um, a college undergraduate playing orchestral excerpts, I could be, I could help them, um, Certainly, I think on any instrument, but if it were, uh, you know, a sixth grade horn player and they just need information for how to get them to sound better, you know, I've limitations of significant limitations and, yeah. and limitations would become their limitations, unfortunately. And I think that's why it's so important for, um, our teachers to gain this information, um, you know, and really gain command of this information so they can pass it on to the students. Um, but, you know, those the, the presentations were really great experiences. Um, and for one, is it's because it really requires me to, to think very deeply about uh, my pedagogical process and what I value in teaching. Um, the the middle presentation was with the H2 quartet. Uh, which is the Saxon Quartet I perform in, and it was uh, ch- um, chamber music is a microcosm for large ensemble skills. So developing these large ensemble skills through chamber music, um, which is part of kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and you know, I, it's I, I'll tell you this. I mean, those Midwest presentations are, are just as valuable for the clinicians, maybe more so. Um, they really have to kind of organize and think very deeply. Yeah. Uh, what they do Um, and that's been the case for me I've gotten so much out of just the opportunity to to articulate some of this
0: yeah I never even thought about it from that point of view you're right though excellent well yeah thanks for for sharing that and then here's my last question for you what advice would you give yourself as a first-year teacher so if you could go back and meet yourself and your first-year teacher self, what would you say you know avoiding mistakes that are avoidable.
1: Um, and, and I think that specifically goes to organization and I, mm-hmm. I organization's organization is a premium, I think in teaching. Um, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean the sort of, um, you know, day-to-day, respond to email, you know, make sure there's no desk clutter. That, that's not really what I'm getting at. I think it's more pedagogical organization, having specific goals in mind from day-to-day, week-to-week. Um, that, that stuff's important. And, um, you know, what I'm finding more and more is effective teaching is about having good in- information, um, but you're not really teaching unless you're delivering well. You know, it's, you, it doesn't matter if you're just, you're just saying it then. You know, if you yes. can say the right stuff, but if you're not getting a, a, adequate change, you're not really teaching, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and that's that's a tough thing to figure out sometimes, especially like when you're giving good information and then there's no response. Well, then what do you do? You know, and and you have to learn to be flexible with your teaching capacity. And I, I think you know that's what I I've learned sometimes is you know I thought I had a, some good strategies, and in most cases I did, but and then you know I would come across a student where. Um, my strategies just didn't and work, and then I just, you know, now what? Because you know, it's it's my job is to make sure that that I help them achieve. Right. Um, that's where good teaching is about being flexible. But the organization part, um, what I'm increasingly finding has has more to do with setting clear objectives, um, both for you and for the students, and having a process to to help them achieve the objectives. And this is what I'm getting at. I I've been I equate it to money a little bit, and saving money. And if if your goal is just to, okay, I want to save money. Well, the thing is, is you know that, that that's too abstract of a goal, just saving money. And you're not really evaluating exactly what's the specific process to do that. And if you want to make changes. They require some sort of behavioral change, or like a day-to-day sort of um, thing that you're going to do differently to make this change. And so the first part of that is, well, you need to know, you know, how much money do you want to save? And and the reason why that's important is, the difference between saving $500 and $5,000 is significant. Um, it requires different. Um, you know, different things like you, you either have to spend less or make more money. Um, and, and if you know that the goal, okay, what, well, what I need to do is, is save $5,000, that at least gives you an idea of how you're going to set up the process to achieve that The different things. Right. And setting 500. And I think with teaching, it's like that, too. I and mean, what's the objective with the students? What are we trying to accomplish at the end of the year? Um, and and when you define that, then you can start to define week by week, day by day, what are you trying to achieve? And I, I find that's the sort of stumbling block. For younger teachers is it's it's so easy to get into survival mode and just okay, I just need to survive this and and kind of get through this and you're not really thinking of the long term goals and then the teaching suffers um, and that that's kind of been my thing and even how um, i don't know how long i've been this is my tenth year of of teaching college um, students. And, and even now I find the need to sort of reevaluate, um, you know, what's going to be our organiz- what's our process, how am I going to organize our teaching from year to year and what's our objectives. And, and that absolutely affects the effectiveness, um, both for me as the instructor and both for them as a student, just knowing what we're trying to accomplish together.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, before I let you go, I do this with every single one of the people that I interview. This is called Rapid Fire. And the goal is I'm going to ask you questions. I have about five questions. And I want you to just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Huh, okay. All right. Are you ready? Let's do it. Here we go. What is your dream vacation? Oh, I, Greenland. Greenland. Really? Really? What, really. what about Greenland is so enticing to you? Yeah.
1: It, it,
0: and, and when I say Greenland, I really
1: mean it, yeah. you know, it's, it's just so far off the beaten path. Yeah. Uh, you know, who, who says they want to go to Greenland? Uh, <laughs> you know, I do. And the, the last, um, the last few like transatlantic flights, um, you know, they've gone high up into the Arctic circle. And I just, I, I love looking out the window and, and when we're passing over Greenland, just seeing this, um, you know, I, I would have already gone. It's just a little bit out of my budget <laughs> right now. Okay. It's so expensive. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I'm going to make it at some point, and I'm um, just excited to see uh, um, firsthand a culture that, you know, is, is so far removed from, from us. Yeah. Really.
0: Oh, that's an interesting answer. Okay. Um, what is your morning routine?
1: I'm a new father, um, and my morning routine is
0: that's when I get to spend time with my daughter. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. So, are you waking up this early every day, or do you? Five thirty every day. Oh my gosh! it's <laughs> I, mean, um, I shouldn't complain to school
1: teachers because that, that's you know they get up earlier. Uh huh. Some cases. That that's the other thing I, I guess I notice about you know college freshmen is um, how their clocks just magically their internal clocks magically shift like three mm-hmm. or four hours. Yeah. Um, I, no, when they're going to high school they get up at five in the morning and you know, now all of a sudden a nine AM class is early and it's I don't know what it is, but
0: Right. Okay. What's one thing that you have to do every day? Practice. Practice. Okay. If your life took a different path and you couldn't teach or perform music, what would you be doing right now? I know that's rapid fire, but I think the
1: I don't know. You know, I I, I, I think I would be an and a lawyer, actually. I, I think I've I've always been drawn to the law. Um
0: Oh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well you're very articulated. I think you'd be a great lawyer. And my <laughs> last question is, why is it that you do pursue music? I I love the day to day
1: challenge. Um that there's always something more to do. And you know, I was thinking about this uh, this morning actually and Um, you know, why is it that we do what we do? And I I find it unfortunate that in the arts we're constantly having to advocate for why we you know, why why is this important, why is it relevant? Um and and it seems so obvious to me, and I think it seems so obvious to people who pursue careers in the arts that um of course it's relevant, has every bit of relevance to our day-to-day lives. I, I just think it's um um you know, short sighted thinking. And and I've been putting it this way, you know around the United States and we're facing significant budget cuts, um, in Oklahoma, the same, we have budget shortfalls and, um, and music programs are uh, some of the first to go always. And, and in our state, it's kind of the same thing. And, um, and I assume the logic here is that well we have to cut something so you know this doesn't have the same real world application so than math and science does and it's not going to have the same economic um, implications so we're going to cut this. But It's really short sighted thinking to me. That's like um, it's it's like saying well we don't have enough food for our children so which meal are we going to cut? And lunch is probably the least important one so we're going to cut that one. Um, where that the the logic isn't sound because, you know, if you do that, that's maybe the easiest short-term solution is to cut a meal. But that has long-term implications that are irrevocable. Um, you know, you stunt growth and, um, and and you can never get that time back. And, and I think what we ought to be thinking about is how to grow more food, um, which I guess brings me to my next point, that in this world we grow enough food right now to feed every person. Um, but we still have people who starve and the the failing there is a failing to get this food to the people. It has nothing to do with um with our capacity to grow food and I think it's the same thing in education and certainly in the arts that um why why would we cut something that's integral uh to what we do? It's like cutting a meal when it should be more of how do we allocate our money to best educate our students because the long-term effects are irrevocable. Um, Going back to the real-world application, you know, why is teaching the arts important? Why is teaching music so important? Well, I think what you find is being a quality-driven person and, and a, someone who really achieves at a high level, it's about doing small things really well. You know, it's about learning how to do the, these little sort of simple tasks at the highest level. And music teaches that. I mean, there's no shortcut to playing the saxophone well. Um, and, and what I really value about it is it's honest. And I feel like when when I hear students play, you know, any musician at any level, when I hear them play, it's like a window into their soul. And there's a lot to that. And one, you know, I can sense, you know, is this the type of person that'll play on a bad read? Is this the type of person that, um, is okay with being out of tune, you know, or is this the type of person who like really once to get it right, and yeah. and there's no shortcut doing it. It's honest, and you only get out of it what you put into it. Um, and these are the sorts of lessons that we want to be teaching um, our, our entire population. I think it helps them become better citizens. Um, and it's just it's foolish to think that. Um, well, math has a more uh, real-world application, so we teach that at the expense of something else. Rather than thinking all of these skills are necessary and important in different ways, we need to figure out how to teach them all at the highest level. Um, You know, and and maybe one, like, sort of real-world application that I've seen get cut a lot is writing, Um, and that's a big mistake. Um, And the reason why we don't value writing the same way is because it's so much more difficult to... Um, to to assess someone's writing, it's it's not like a right or wrong thing necessarily. You're really cultivating a skill, um, but, but but writing is is also uh, um, a, a window into creative activity, into creative thought, and um, and and how to be flexible with certain things, and, and realize there's more than one right answer. And, and that's a good example of something that has suffered because of, you know, just valuing one part of our education over another. Um, so it's, you know, uh, it's it, it's a real issue right now. And, um, you know, what, what we teach in the arts, and i would say certainly um, our public school teachers, band directors, orchestra directors, choir directors, um, um, they have maybe the toughest and most critical job um, that I can think certainly in the arts, um, and and we have to continue to advocate for ourselves because it's we we must exist. It's critical. Um, it's it's critical for for our future generations. I really think that.
0: Absolutely, I 100% agree with you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge. I really appreciate it. That was fantastic. And I'm grateful for the
1: invitation. Thanks for inviting me, and and good luck to you for the rest of the school year.
0: And like I said, that was probably one of the best interviews we've ever had on the Tenuto Podcast, and I'm sure you agree after listening to it. I hope you guys have a great week. Next week you're gonna hear from another Midwest clinician. Uh so keep your eye out for that. That's gonna be dropping on the Facebook page on Sunday. So keep your eye out for who that's gonna be. Really exciting guest, and